Attention Limerick. Have you seen my dog? Mauler, a foxy Tibetan bull mastiff wolf whippet mix web missing from my yard at 9 o'clock this morning. Last seen driving a black OD and clearing a group of small fellas out of it in little car park. We are heartbroken as a family and terrified. Mauler is a dwarf of a dog, but he also has severe behavioural issues since coming off the drink. Do not try and talk to him, you won't get through to him. And if you're wearing black or white items of clothing, don't go near him. He'll take you for a piebald horse and go for your throat. If you have any information about my dog, don't hesitate to contact me, John Murphy. I'm John Murphy, right? Via Donny Scott Solicitors. Marlow is more than just a member of my family. He's also the owner of my car and godfather to my child. Marlow, if you're listening, please come home. Okay? Let's bring my bastard home. The best bitch. Second-rate show. Juggernaut of a podcast. Will we watch a movie? And see if we like it. Hello and welcome to the Best Bits Second Rate Show, where we give a second look to a film we didn't see the first time. This is, of course, Will, and I am joined, as always, of course, by Kevin. Hello, Kevin. Well, it's a marvelous night for a moon dance. (laughs) How are you, Will? Ah, well, you know what? I'm feeling quite relaxed after that. Chilling me out with that stuff. I love it. What are we doing, Will? This isn't our usual show, and it's not the usual second-rate show either. No, we have said when we recorded every episode of the 50 episodes we've done that there have been at least one film where we've said, oh, I'm going to watch that, I've never seen it, I have to watch that film. But we rarely get a chance to go back and actually follow through on those exclamations or those claims. And that's what we're going to do. It's very, very rare for me that a film that I've dismissed that I've been told that I need to see turns out to be good enough that I'm glad that I watched it. Right. Usually my first instinct is right on the money, where I'm like, yeah, it's good. It's not for me. Interesting. So I'm looking forward to talking about the films on this episode, which are... (laughs) An American Werewolf in London and... A Peruvian Bear in Paddington. (laughs) You can guess which person pushed which film on the other. Well, Everyone's just wanted me to watch Paddington 2 for years. I did. Paddington 2 came up in post-credits, episode 13. Was it post-credits or was it reunions? It was post-credits. It probably came up in reunions as well because you just kept pushing that yeah. film. But you brought yeah. it in post-credits because of Hugh Grant's scene at the end when he's in prison and he's dancing about the place. Yeah, so it has come up because it came up in reunions as well, definitely, but you're right. And American Wear for London, it came up twice. It came up in Best SFX Scene, which is episode 9, and it came up in Best Scene Set in the Cinema, episode 34. It was Connor McMahon's pick, if you can remember the live show, Will. Mm, I do remember the live show. I remember that terror. I remember just sitting there and just... Um, yeah. I remember, I remember having to get you out of the toilets and, and talk you down and... You'd thrown up it was like the second time you'd thrown up and I was like well it's going to be fine there's going to be nobody there it's going to be fine I remember you turning on the heckler remember we'd won heckler and you just, you just dove into the audience and you just did a I, I said to my mum sit up the back and don't <laughs> make a spectacle but she wouldn't listen anyway 
Well, shall we talk about these films that we have avoided seeing for so many years? Okay. So which one are we going to start with? I think we should start with An American Wealth in London. Okay. Came out first. Good. And the song that I've been playing under our intro is number one in the charts at the time that American Wealth came out. And it's Shaken Stevens' Green Door. Oh my God. Excellent. Do you love it? Is it do you like the song? I It's it's one that's on my playlist. Sing us a bit of it there. Long. I've got my green door and it's so green. <laughs> do you know how much I adore my green door? Yeah. That's the song. Oh, I love that. Let's play the trailer for An American Werewolf in London. Okay, let me just get my VHS. And... Get the track in race. Whenever you rent or buy a... This is the story of two young American students traveling through England on a night of the full moon. I heard that. What was it? Could be a lot of things. Fate let one live. A lunatic must have been a very fierce fellow. Wasn't a lunatic. What? A wolf. Oh, be serious, would you? And now everything is changing. 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 John Landis, the brilliant young director of Animal House and the Blues Brothers, has turned a classic tale of terror into something new. Something different. Excuse me. A naked American man stole my balloon. I'm a werewolf. An American werewolf in London. Something different. American Werewolf in London is a story about two American backpackers, David and Jack, who are attacked by a werewolf while travelling in England, causing David to question whether he will become a werewolf under the next full moon. That's very, very. That's a very quick synopsis of what's going on with this film. It's a werewolf movie. It was the third werewolf movie of 1981. No way. The Howling. Mm-hmm. Was The Howling another one? Yeah, The Howling was out that year as well by Joe Dante. Okay. And a really good one that not many people have seen called Wolfen. Oh, I've heard this, this title. I've seen the box, but I've never watched it. Wolfen. Wolfen scared the bejesus out of wow. me as a kid. Which one did you see first? Oh, I saw American Werewolf first. American okay. Werewolf. I've said this before on the podcast. Uh, I've said it many times. Um, purely because I've been trying to sort of decode when did movies get their hooks into me? Mm. When did it start? And as I've said in the past, when my parents were splitting up, I was staying at my cousin's. And so I got to see movies for the first time. And the movies that they wanted to watch, they're 10 years older than me. They would be watching Terminator, American Wealth in London, Halloween, Halloween 2, that sort of stuff. And as long as I was quiet, I could sit there and watch it with them. And So I don't know which one I saw first. Could be American Wealth, but I have a vivid, vivid memory of watching this film when I was about five and a half. Way, 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 way too young. But 
I don't remember it scaring me. That's the strangest thing about all these films. None of them terrified me. I would get scared if I watched films on my own. Watching wow. them with others. It just... I didn't get nightmares from them. They didn't traumatize me. They just sort of like mesmerized me. And I wanted to know more. I was obsessively like fascinated by movies after that. So I saw American Wolf mid 80s on VHS, way too young. And what I was going to say, the link between Wolf and, and American Wolf is that they have two decapitation scenes, two scenes where a wolf leaps out and bites somebody's head off. So it's strange how that can happen, like where, you know, you get Armageddon and Deep Impact and you get wolves biting off heads, mm-hmm. wolfing American werewolf. And they're like, you know, the filmmakers meet up and they kind of go, ah, well, in our movie, yeah. Oh, you've got a wolf movie. You stole my idea. <laughs> they're shooting them like concurrently going, did you have your wolf biting off someone's head as well? And they're like, going, yeah, holy shit, I did too. Mad. The other thing about American Wolf is that Rick Baker, who won the Academy Award, the very, very first Academy Award for special effects. It was created that year, and he was the first ever recipient of Best Special Effects Mm. Oscar. He was going to do Howling, but he had given a sort of a a handshake agreement to John Landis that he was going to do his werewolf movie. So John Landis was like, come on, man, you said you were going to do my werewolf movie, and now you're going to do Joe Dante's. So he left his protege, Rob Bottin, to do the howling. And that sort of drove a wedge between the two of them because oh. Rob Bottin became pretty established after that as also a master of special effects. And they had a rivalry going after that. Wow. funny. So uh, was it Rick Baker was the guy who did the work on The Thing, which came out the following year? No, that was Rob Bottin. That was Rob Bottin. Okay, and it was one of the two. Okay. Yeah. Wow. What did you think of it? I have to come clean. This is one of those films that I thought I'd seen this film because I've seen so many clips of it throughout the years in in various... So I've seen the transformation scene multiple times. I've seen uh, various little clips from it and, you know, all these kind of compilation movie shows. Altogether, I kind of felt I'd seen the film, but then went to watch the film. I watched it the last night and I watched the first 20 minutes and I was taken back... Did you watch the rest of it? Well, I'm just saying specifically in the first 20 minutes... I was taken back to a, an early memory of mine where I knew I, I saw the first 20 minutes of this film. I have seen the first 20 minutes of this film before when I was young. So I don't think I was five. Maybe I was, I don't know. It was on TV, basically. And I stopped watching it. I know for a fact I stopped watching it after the first attack. Because it was too scary? Because it was too scary. And it kind of tapped into something in me that a type of terror that really repulses me. Right, or it's too much English people, <laughs> English pubs, just slaughter lamb. <laughs> Do you know when I was backpacking? I loved American backpackers. I met one American backpacker in that entire time. I met a few in my time. I've, I've murdered several. <laughs> They've gotten lost up in the hills of Donegal, <laughs> and he just come by my house, and I'm waiting for them with a big stick and a few sands of turf. When they'd come to Cork, you'd often get pulled over by them and they'd be asking for directions. Yeah. Like, hi, we're trying to get to Dingle. You're, like, You're in Cork. Oh, right. But isn't Dingle near here? Like about a, a hundred miles away. And they'd be like, oh, great, thanks. And they'd just head off like as if it was just up the road. You'd be thinking, wow, that's the difference between American geography and Irish geography. 
Yeah. You could be living four streets away from one of your direct family members and you probably see them twice a year because they're too far away. <laughs> That's right. But hey, American Werewolf in London, it, it worked on it. It did its magic on me again. Uh, or he cast its spell on me. Um, the same thing that happened to me when I was young happened to me watching it again the last night. There was a there's a particular type of horror in a, that's exploited in a few of these scenes that really it taps to a nerve of mine, which kind of repulses me a small little bit. But overall, first of all, like overall, I thought it was a, a very good film, right? I think it is quite good. The main thing is I kind of like the balance between the humour and that really repulsive horror do you know it's regarded by many as the best horror comedy that's ever been made oh really because it's genuinely funny and it's legitimately scary usually with horror comedies they fall on one side of the fence or the other where it's more comedic than it is scary Shaun of the Dead is what I would consider to be a comedy horror Mm -hmm. because it's far more interested in being comedic than it is in trying to scare you with its intensity but American Werewolf in London, it's going for big laughs, but it's also legitimately trying to terrify you. Very few films have ever successfully pulled it off. So the gold standard when it comes to tackling that genre, the gold standard reference point would be American Werewolf in London and perhaps Gremlins. Oh, that's the, those are good. Those are two good uh, examples. Yeah, Gremlins is definitely Gremlins scares the shit out of you. What I liked about it, I liked the main leads. I liked those two, David Naughton and uh, Griffin Dunn. Those characters, they were really charming guys to be hanging around with. One of the things I love about that opening between the two of them is it feels like it's improv. It feels like they're just riffing Mm. and they're really enjoying themselves, where this might be like take 20 or whatever. I think, isn't it Griffin Dunn? He starts getting snot in his nose and he's trying to talk while there's so much snot and he's laughing at himself. That yeah. feels real. When they go into the slaughtered lamb, I was totally on their side. Thought everyone in the slaughtered lamb was a fucking asshole. And Rick Mail, I love seeing Rick Mail's cameo in there, probably pre the young ones. And so when can I tell you how that came about? Go on, yeah. I've got all these things to interject. And I don't know whether no. interjecting is is helpful or not. No, do do do. Go on. John Landis saw the young ones on telly, and he loved Rick Mail and Aid Edmondson, and he said, right. "Guys." I'm going to write a part for you guys. Come come and do the movie. And on the day that they were supposed to shoot, only Rick Mail turned up. Ed Edmondson didn't believe him that there was going to be a part for him. And so that's no why Rick Mail is in there is because John Landis was in London, working on the film, was watching The Young Ones and was a big fan of Bodrum. Ah, I suppose that's for British audiences that would have gotten that Easter egg, you know, because American audiences would go, oh, who's that? I don't even, wouldn't even recognise who he was. And the other thing was, because of the Blues Brothers, the producers that were doing the film, they initially wanted John Landis to cast Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi as the two backpackers. Oh, wow. Oh, it wouldn't have worked at all. No. They don't have, they don't have that. What I feel for these two lads is I feel vulnerability for them. You know, I feel, first of all, I feel them that they're believable uh, in the roles. Like if we had Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi in there, I just felt, you know, bullets would have bounced off them. I wouldn't have believed in any of that. Also, who would be what? I suppose John Belushi would end up being the Griffin Dunn role. I'd reckon so, yeah. That would be my guess. Dan Aykroyd probably, yeah. More the leading man type particular stage. But when they when they leave and they go out onto the moors, I think that's a it's a it's a standout scene. 
right when they go out into the walk they get lost on the moors like absolute dopes they wander off the road and that was the scene when they get attacked that stay on the road attack. yeah man it's it really horrified me i thought it was it was it did its job and it as i was trying to articulate earlier and i've been trying to get my my head around it a bit do you remember in robocop there's a certain time type of thing that really upsets me right and it still does to this day is a certain type of violence that's portrayed on the screen where we witness the suffering of someone, right? A sustained death. Yeah, sustained, yeah. And we do have a few of those scenes in this film which really disturbed me and disturbed me in an extreme way when I was young. And that first attack disturbed me because, one, I, I, I don't feel they deserved it and they were complete victims in that moment. And when we see Griffin Dunn kind of gargling on the ground, it's just we're seeing his corpse just kind of like obliterated and covered in blood and entrails out of him and stuff like that. It's so brutal. I felt, I don't know, feel such... It's too bleak for you. It's too, yeah, it's, it's too much. It's, it's too much. I hate seeing people suffering like that on screen, especially when they're completely innocent bystanders. You know, um, that's what it feels like. If you get what I mean, like when the exec gets killed no, in do. Robocop. And then when, when Murphy gets executed by the gang in the Detroit warehouse, you know, that sustained torture. That's what I get from a couple of these scenes, you know, and I get that same kind of repulsion, which is, I suppose, the intent of the filmmaker is to kind of really shock you and scare you. Um, Can I ask you then, because yeah. this came out in 1981, obviously Jaws had come out six years prior. Do you have the same visceral reaction to the opening of Jaws because Christy is going oh god it hurts it hurts the first time I saw it as an adult Jaws I did okay. but now I don't you know I no, I no I didn't sorry no, not as much but it's something similar it is something similar where you go oh she's she's just an innocent victim in this it's, it's along the same lines it's definitely along it really disturbs me d- d- depicting someone innocent having a yeah a protracted death yeah it's interesting I I, I I remember the death scene in Platoon when Kevin Dillon goes into the hut and there's a mentally challenged kid and it's either his mother or his grandmother and he beats him to death with the butt of his rifle. And I Mm. remember, I I must have been 12, I remember going to bed that night and feeling like the world is a cruel, cruel, bleak, horrible place and I was unaware that it could be that dark. And mm. it was like a coldness has set in on me. And I remember just feeling really disturbed by that. Didn't get that with any of these monster movies. Because I don't know. It just felt like there was a sense of... Maybe it was the reaction of my cousins that were watching it as well. That sort mm. of took the sting out of it. But anything that's sort of grounded where there's nothing supernatural going on. When there's violence in it, I don't feel like that it has the same connotation. So when there's a death scene in like Goodfellas... That disturbs me. That I hate. I, I don't like watching that. You know, where they open the trunk and it's like stab, 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 or, or stamping on someone's head. Yeah. That makes me physically sick. But slasher movies or American Wolf in London, it didn't, it doesn't have that effect on me. Interesting. I had the same experience with the transformation scene. And what was, what, what I found incredible. interesting. It's an, uh, yeah, an astounding piece, uh, piece of SFX works. It is SFX work. It's an incredible thing. They shot it thing. for a full week. And they spent really? months preparing to do it. Yeah. And Even they did the it backwards. Hair. 
Like how did how did it got the hair growing and stuff like that? I don't did know. Did it backwards? So the hair so they pulled was, the hair in. Yeah, so they applied the, the full set of hair on his body, and then they would remove it and pull it back, and then they would play that backwards. But the the thing about that stood out to me about that scene was the, John Landis's decision to use that upbeat needle drop track. It, it wasn't Blue Moon. I'm trying to remember what song he uses right there. I would love to know. I don't know if you know why he made the decision to include that track, which is a completely contrasting piece of music to what we're seeing. You know, we're seeing some... There's lots of songs on the soundtrack that reference yeah. moons. There's Van Morrison's Moon Dance, things like that. He wanted a different song, and I can't remember what it was. It, it Was it Moon River, or I think it might have been a Bob Dylan song, but he couldn't get the rights to it. So he ended up using, I think it is Blue Moon. It's Blue Moon. Like I'm wondering, is it like it was the reason he chose that? Was it to lessen the horror that we're seeing on screen, like lessen the experience of watching his suffering, make it more palatable, I suppose, for an audience? No, I think it drives it home because it's it sort of reminds you that these things which bring you joy, it's only in the context of where you are when you hear them or how you feel, and that they can have zero effect on nullifying the power in a moment like that the juxtaposition makes it feel like horrific and this is a horrific moment I I agree with you I think that's what it does it makes it more horrific feeling because from my brief reading my brief scan of Wikipedia I know Elmer Bernstein scored whatever pieces of original scores used throughout the film because yeah there's a lot of needle drop tracks in there and he did score a piece of music for that scene and John Landis chose not to use it and instead used Blue Moon instead and like what you were saying there, even the setting of where that transformation takes place, which is in this cosy, like one bedroom apartment, uh, everything's kind of floral and nice soft fabrics and it's brightly lit as well. It's not like dark. And then we have this music. So it feels, it drives, drives it home. Do you know what stood out to me when I watched the film recently? I would say 10 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, probably a little more, was how ancient everything looked. Like London looked almost Victorian. The right. police officer, the, the police officer with the the top hat, the the buses, the payphones, just everything. The the faces of the people, Piccadilly mm-hmm. Circus. It all looked so like it belonged in a different era, not the eighties, not the vibrant, colourful Walkman era. I suppose it was he was leaning into that aesthetic. He didn't want a, a kind of a nice, bright London. He wanted the kind of foggy London. No, no, I think he captured London as it was. But yeah. what stood out to me was, it's like when you go back now and you look at cars from like the mid-90s. And you realize, yeah. oh my God, they're so boxy and old-fashioned. And look at the <laughs> look at the haircuts and the clothing. And we all thought that we were like cutting edge. And you were on the edge, we were in the future. We were living in the future. <laughs> yeah, know? our Joe yeah. Bloggs jeans and our fucking turnips. <sighs> Thank God I never yeah. subscribed to that particular fashion trend or whatever they call it curtain whatever what were the I can't remember the hairstyles hair curtains yeah <laughs> but it does if it, it, the film has got a, a really visceral tactile nature about it from top to bottom because I loved so much of the the location shooting seeing like Tottenham Court Road you know the the tube station mm. it still feels like that you know the the sounds and the aesthetic of that you know that's what that place feels like and you know who that guy is in that really protracted chase sequence when he gets off no. the tube what is he says something like I can assure you that this is not in the least bit of music like that. yeah. that's Bib Fortuna what? 
Yeah. From Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Oh my God. Wow. Mm. There was loads of films happening in England at the time because of a tax break. So you had Raiders and you had like the Star Wars films were all shooting there. And yeah. Yeah. So a lot of these sort of That's character amazing. actors keep popping up. I think actually as well that, that this film came up in dream sequences. Best dream scene. Did it? Well, it should have because I, that's one of the, the, the things that I, I, I really admired about the film. Or those dream- oh, it did. The attack in the, 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 Nazi, the Nazi monsters. Yeah, when he's having, he's having hallucinations as yeah. this sort of... This fever. Yeah, he's having these fever dreams, these nightmarish, horrible, anguished stress dreams. And I also saw... I'm actually calling back all the times this film has been referenced in the show. I also saw the... Um, the, the, the nod to his uh, John Landis's fake movie See You Next Wednesday I saw yeah. that it was like the sex comedy and it's even it features prominently the poster was in that tube station but then that was the first thing they shot as well was the, um, well, the sex scene that Connor picked for his scene set in the cinema mm. yeah and did you notice Frank Oz was in the film yes I was like I recognise that voice oh my god it's Frank as Oz the ambassador I also this was the other thing I felt about the film watching it like as a whole I was like going, shit, this is just such a tragedy because it's a story about all victims. Like it's everyone, there's, there's, no, re, there's, there's no villain because like our, the villain of the piece is the werewolf, like, you know, which we only see a handful of times. But he's tormented and chased by the ghost of Griffin Dunn's character and these fever dreams. And uh, it ultimately telling him that he needs to kill himself. I was waiting for, I was like waiting for this film to have a happy ending because I did not remember the ending if I'd ever seen it before. I love the ending to the film. It's so abrupt and I, I just love the impact of it. It's so tragic. It, it just stops. He gets killed and it stops and it just holds on her face of like, fuck. And then that hard cut to the credits and the and the use of I think it's Blue Moon again over the over the credits, and it's just like this like sharp Perfection. contrast. Yeah, I have to I, I admire that. And one of the things, yeah, that's one of the things I felt about the film. I was I don't think there's any particular character arc of any character. It's just a kind of a, almost like a document of someone who is unfortunately goes down the wrong lane and gets fucked for doing so it's like you know a warning a cautionary tale to anyone that's probably the reason there aren't that many american backpackers out there definitely i mean you do not want to go down any wrong lanes and get fucked but you don't know what you can pick up that's probably the reason you didn't actually encounter any backpackers or american backpackers on your times because they're all warned off down lanes getting fucked they've seen american werewolf in london it says well i'm not gonna go i'm not leaving america staying here baby I don't want to go to England. Jesus Christ, have you seen the faces? Well, doesn't that play to a fundamental fear that we all have? You know, of- English people. <laughs> a, fundamental- <laughs> a fundamental fear we have of going to foreign lands. There's that anxiety of like, well, what, what's going to happen to me over there? And this film plays right into that. You know, oh, you, infor- you, you, you sweet summer child who thought you could go off and, you know, have a romantic, you know, tour of Europe for, for, a, for a summer. It's very healthy for you to do it, though. Definitely. There were so many things that I learned about the world and about the experience of others when I was the other. Yes. What year was this, Kevin? Oh, um, it would have been 2021. 
Oh. <laughs> 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 I literally had to do, whoa, 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 what? No, it would have been 2005. <laughs> I have a question for you, right? Mm. It came up in dreams. I mentioned it on the SFX episode. Connor mentioned it for the scene set in the cinema. Now that you have seen the film, would it have come up at any point in the prior 50 episodes where it was suitable based on oh, your recent watch? Definitely the SFX scene where the transformation happens. An incredible sequence. Like, you know, just technically, like I found it, you know, I, you know, I found it amazing, the craft work of that, but I also found the the horror and repulsion I also felt, the agony I felt for, for poor David, his character in that scene. I thought it was amazing. Do you know what the most impressive sequence though for me is in that movie? Which one? It's the Piccadilly Rampage. Oh, that is Piccadilly Circus. That is 1981 London. Wow. They shut down for a few hours on two nights. And John Landis had got sort of, he got the police on his side by showing them a free screening of Blues Brothers. And they had to rehearse it constantly. They built a fake version of the, the, the layout to Piccadilly Circus. And they rehearsed like the bus and, and uh, the different sort of uh, stunts that they'd have to do. Yeah. Even John Landis is in there getting hit by a car and thrown through plate glass oh, I didn't see that yeah it, it stands in such stark contrast to where we are now where everything is the volume or it's it's like a a fake street and you can feel yeah. it's a fake street mm. it just doesn't have when the you, same sort of impact when you see the extras you, you, you actually do feel like oh you know they shot this on the street you know documentary style and people are standing around are just watching a movie being made, going, oh, cool, isn't this cool? We're watching a movie. And it, you feel it. You feel the reality of it. There's a sequence that I loved in it. My favourite scene in it, including my favourite shot, is the Tottenham Court Road attack with Bib Fortuna, where that businessman is hunted through mm. the, the tube station. And it ends with, with the most impressive shot in the film for me, which is looking down the escalator. Looking down the escalator. And we see Bib Fortuna, you know, collapse on the escalator going upwards. But I wished... I wished they had managed to figure out a way for him to be going downwards. That if he'd gotten up, you know, imagine if he was just being, you're, you're looking down the escalator and he's just going down. And oh. then we see the, the wolf, the wolf coming out, you know, and you go, oh shit, he's been fed into the fucking wolf. You know, it was taking him away. Anyway, but aside from that, I, I thought that was such an amazing shot because we just saw enough glimpse, of the wolf. And you saw the size of it and you thought, yeah. this is not like a guy in a wolf suit. And it's a beautifully composed shot. It's a, this is a film where I, where I don't think there's that many am, amazingly composed shots, but that particular shot is so amazingly composed. I loved it. So that scene, I thought, stood out. So it's a film that had so many standout great scenes, excellent performances. The two guys were fantastic, and Jenny Agutter is amazing. I loved the balance of the comedy. It's interesting what you say, though, that there are no character acts. A lot of great horror movies don't really have great character acts. Yeah, it's a tragedy. It's not really about that. Yeah, it's a tragedy. And that's how I resolved. I had I resolved in my own mind. I went, oh, this is this is a tragedy that this happens to this guy. And it's hilarious. I don't find it hilarious. It's a film that I don't find hilarious. <laughs> I go in the cinema and she's suddenly saying like, um, you could shoot yourself. <laughs> I find that so bleak. Like it's uh, so it's funny. Like it's kind of it, it's titillating, but I don't find it hilarious. I'm like going, oh, this is, I feel such compassion for that fella that is going through this, and uh, I'm like, oh, he doesn't deserve this. He just doesn't deserve this to happen to him. Did you ever see the sequel, An American Werewolf in Paris? I was going to ask you about. No, I have not. Have you? 
I have, yeah. And? It's very forgettable. I believe that Jenny Agatha got pregnant with David. Right. And the son, I believe, is backpacking in in Paris. And uh, Julie Delpy is the, the female lead. That's but, gas. That's gas, Kevin, because when the film finished last night, I went, oh, the only way you could kind of do a sequel to this is if she got pregnant. And that's the only way you could actually could maybe do something that ties into the idea. I think film. that's what happens. I could be wrong. It could, it could right. just be an entirely different werewolf. I remember there was a big sequence that happened in a, in a graveyard, but nothing in that film landed the same way. They also had terrible visual effects. Okay. Again, you can tell that it's like, it's not a real werewolf. Right, yeah, yeah. They should have just gotten a real one. Yeah, they should have gotten a real one. There was too much CG. Oh, they, they had a sequence as well where somebody bungee jumped off the, the Eiffel Tower. That's all I can remember from that film, but not not worth watching. I want to say, ultimately... Oh, yeah, and I looked up where this, where he got the idea for this. This was a script he wrote back in... John Landis wrote back in 1969 when he was quite he young. He was 18. Yeah. Is that it? And he got uh-huh. the inspiration. He was in Yugos- He was on set of what other film? Um, he had some- fucked off, and he'd become a stuntman in Yugoslavia. And he saw he'd been noodling around with this idea. And I remember he, because I've met John Landis. He's an executive what? producer. He's an executive, not an executive producer. He's. We wanted to get him as an executive producer on Grabbers, but he wanted to be paid, and he didn't have the money. <laughs> oh my god! So he's got Christ. a he's got a special thanks. He read the script and he had one note on the script to Grabbers, which was he didn't believe that all the townspeople would gather for um, a, a town event. I believe it was. So I then made it at mass that they were at mass and they went to mass and sort of a sort of to broke the news to the to the people that they were going to have a lock in, right? And it was going to be free beer. That was his one note. But him and his wife, they came to a screening of Grabbers. Where was this? In London? That Den of Geek put on. Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm. And uh, I bought him a drink. No way. uh, I did, yeah. Drink. And he was, he was everything he wanted to be. He was a raconteur. He was like telling all these Irish jokes and and he had everybody gathered around him and he was just so magnanimous and chatty and volunteering his time. He didn't have to stay. And, and hang out he hung out for about an hour him and his wife yeah but I remember I felt really inadequate talking to him because he would say have you seen blah 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 like oh. no I've not seen it I've not heard of it oh you gotta watch that Have you, but you know what else it reminded me of blah 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 have you seen this and it'd be some Italian horror or something I'd be oh. like oh I've not I've not seen it I felt so like naive and you say have you seen Paddington 2 <laughs> if you're like going, no I haven't seen Paddington 2 yet <laughs> It's not come out yet, but I'm, I've got a feeling it's going to be but just as horrifying. Can I ask you, was he, so it was something he was in town for, like he was in London already and it just kind of lined up with the schedules that you could get him to, to you know, Den, you said it was organized by Den of Geek, that website. And no, we invited him separate to that. The Den of Geek thing oh. was for readers. They did a special screening, but he was shooting Burke and Hare, I believe. Oh, okay. That's the last, his last feature credit. Is it really? Mm, I checked it. I was looking it up this morning. Yeah, he was the last feature shit. film credit. Wow, wow! What a lovely, lovely man. I am so glad that I have uh, filled in this blind spot because even though it elicited feelings of complete terror, I think it was a. Uh, it's a very good film. It's a very good film. David, is it you? 
I'm really glad I've actually seen it now in full you know rather than just cutting clips into the podcast and saying oh yeah I remember that scene <laughs> just finding the clip and putting it in there bullshitting David they're going to kill you David please please let me help you I love you, David. I see why it has been brought up so many times in the podcast. Well, we're going to jump 16 years into the future to 2017 for a film that is also set in London. 16 years and 26 years. So we're going to jump ahead 26 years 36 years into the future fucking doors to post-Brexit London yeah so 1981 coming out of the dismal 70s Thatcher as Prime Minister awful time and now Brexit probably the lowest point in modern British history and a new character is roaming the streets of London and I'll give you my synopsis Will After a sustained campaign of mayhem on the streets of London, a predator well-known in his community does time for thieving. (laughs) In prison, he rises up the ranks until, hell-bent on revenge, he busts out, leading a mob of criminals. Once loose and prowling the streets, he sets off on a mission to find and do in the lonely, poverty-stricken artist whose evidence put him away. Paddington (laughs) 2. That's a different way of looking at it. Mr. Gruber? Oh, what's this? Ah, this is London. It's wonderful. Aunt Lucy always dreamed of coming to London. If she saw this, it would be like she were finally here. Aunt Lucy! Oh, Paddington. This is perfect. I've had a brilliant idea. I'm going to get a job and buy that book for Aunt Lucy's birthday. Hello, window cleaner. Ow. Are you quite sure you're ready for the workplace, Paddington? It's Phoenix Buchanan. Dad's celebrity client. I suppose you know who I am. Oh, yes. You're a very famous actor. VIP. Celebrity. (laughs) Or used to be. Now you do dog food commercials. (laughs) This pop-up book, where on earth did you find it? Mr. Gruber's antique shop. Stop! Freeze! Hold it right there. But I'm not the thief. Mysterious things have been happening all over town. We're rich again. I may look like a hardened criminal, but I'm innocent. We're going to need a foolproof plan. If anyone can recognize a criminal, it's us. He's a master of disguise. What? This is breaking an edge. I haven't broken anything. Where do you think you're going there? Paddington wouldn't hesitate if any of us needed help. 
He looks for the good in all of us. Oh. Marmalade. Oh. Take a seat. So, Kevin, Paddington Two is a film that's come up. We said it already. Came up at least it's come up at least twice on the podcast. And you have said to me in the past that, ah, oh, you know, you know, I haven't seen it, and I don't know if you were too enamored about the thought of having to watch it for the first time. But I can say that I remember seeing the first Paddington film in the cinema. And coming out of it thinking, that's the best family film of the year. So much so that I actually emailed one of the producers who I knew from a meeting and had met just a few months previous and and told them, you know, how much I liked it and expressed. I said, if you're doing a sequel, I, I would love to throw my name into the hat. I waited for many, many months, they many went, years. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Yeah. That's very kind of you. Yeah. Oh, no, they're English, aren't they? They're Thank English, you, yeah. Bill. <laughs> we, we'll be in touch. <laughs> so nice to drop that note, chap. Do be in touch. But when the sequel came out, I actually didn't see it in the cinema. I think I was away with work. Uh, I was away someplace. But I know Karen had taken the kids to it and she really enjoyed it. So I eventually, the first time I saw it was when it was streaming on Amazon or whatever it was on. Netflix. I think it came on, I think it came on Amazon first. Uh, it's on Netflix it, now. It's on Netflix now, yeah. Because the great thing about Netflix is you can watch films on one and a half speed. So I know it was on Netflix. (laughs) When I saw it, I genuinely thought it was one of the best family films of the decade. And not only I thought it was one of the best films of the decade because it was came out in in a period of such, uh, you know, uh, you said it's a post Brexit uh, Britain, and it came out in a time when things were looking and Trump had been elected. Everything looked pretty bleak at that particular time. I loved it. Absolutely thought it was such a, a warm hug of a movie. And Kevin, I'm going to throw it over to you. What did you think of Paddington 2, you cold-hearted bastard? I can say that I find the intention of the filmmakers to be so pure that it's so touching to me. The movie was going to put out there into the world that kindness is fun and that every choice in the movie would reinforce that agenda Mm. And it's kindness that you are rooting for as an audience member to win. You, you're not, you're not wanting Paddington to get the guts to to fight Hugh Grant. And it's not about Paddington using his wits or or having a moment where he comes to believe in himself or self actualize. It's everyone that Paddington has been unconditionally kind through throughout the film come through for him. And and I just love that because it's just planting that seed in children's minds that kindness is how you win. And when I was looking at it through that prism, you see all the choices. There's so many great moments in this movie where all the little characters have, have moments where you've got Hugh Bonneville and he feels like he's past his prime. And there's two things they do. One is that when he tries to improve himself, those new skills that he's picked up actually pay off. They help him mm-hmm. out. But also, he didn't need to doubt himself because he still had the ability to do the things that he was once able to do. It's just those lovely little things that I think is thrown in there for all the depressed dads watching the movie. 
or with Mrs. Brown with, with Sally Hawkins Sally Hawkins character where she's longing to go on an adventure and then she's like leading the charge through the, the, the third act to help Paddington but the kindness angle to the story the lowest of the low in society criminals the people who we think of as dispendable and discarded human beings they're the ones that come through at the very last second when Paddington is dying which I didn't expect to have happen where he's drowning mm. yeah and it's the kindness that he's shown them that comes through in the end and they break the chains yeah and I think the symbolism of that it, it coming in post-Brexit Britain just felt like it was the right message to put out into the world and uh, when I when I'm writing stuff and you're, you're trying to um you have a theme, you have a you have a, a purpose, and you, you hope that you can get it through, and that it will it will resonate. It takes a really good creative team, all pulling in the same direction, to reinforce the agenda of the movie, so that every choice that you make is on theme, and everything in this movie is about kindness. Kindness is fun. When Paddington is removed from the the community that the community becomes bleaker and colder mm-hmm. and kindness is gone. That's so sort of sweet and touching and, and lovely. And because it's in a kid's film as well, it's just, uh, it's really commendable and admirable. So I hated this film. <laughs> no, I just wanted to make a note of that because it's, it's a lovely thing and it rarely, rarely happens. It didn't get ironic. It didn't get sarcastic. It didn't sort of shy away from going there and committing to the to the bit that Paddington is just innate kindness mm. I, uh, what's the line that they have in it you've got two com- two competing theses here you've got the character of Brendan Gleeson where he's like I don't do nothing for no one for nothing it's a funny line. line it's a funny yeah. line but it's also yeah. it's also the statement that has to be rejected so it's like yeah. it's not about it's not about doing nothing for no one for nothing. It's about, what is, what is it that Aunt Lucy says? Paddington is always quoting his Aunt Lucy and he says, Aunt Lucy used to say, if we're kind and polite, the world would be right. Mm-hmm. So you've got those two competing sort of uh, arguments. It's very simplistic, but I think that's what makes it effective because you know that they are laser focused on putting this into the world where it's like, not only is kindness what we need but it's also fun the world is mm. more fun i think it's it's i think it's very complex in its uh, and it makes it look simplistic because it is juggling so many characters so many characters having journeys so many different plots you've got you've got paddington's journey you've got the the brown, uh, the brown family's journey to try and um, clear Paddington's name and you've got the you have even touched on Hugh character sorry Hugh characters Grant's character Hugh Grant's characters his journey which is you know to, to he's all about vanity and narcissism and accumulating wealth he should have been nominated for that performance because Isn't it is it? such a great performance it's my favourite Hugh Grant performance without question also can I just say I love Hugh Grant 
And I just love the way everything in the story is balanced as well. Whereas in the first film, I didn't think it was as finely balanced between the, the plot of the villain and uh, the Brown family and Paddington. It just felt like, you know, Paddington was the, the main star of it. But in this film, all of the elements, it feels like it's just perfectly, like this beautiful clockwork diorama. You have to credit like the writing directing team of Paul King and Simon Farnaby, who has one of my favorite lines in it, which is turn around, stunning sister. That's one of my favorite, one of my favorite lines. <laughs> so there was a moment in it where I guffawed out loud where the Brown family come to visit Paddington when he's in prison and Paddington yeah. introduced introduced all of the other criminals who were in jail with him and one of them and it's like it's like um cash point knuckles mcginty sir jeffrey wilcott and sir jeffrey wilcott <laughs> pops up and he goes i hope i can rely on your vote <laughs> and when they ask him they asked him have they seen the likeness of hugh grant <laughs> they're all like no nah, i don't know who he is and sir jeffrey wilcott goes i can either confirm nor deny <laughs> it's just it's just he's lovely. Like, tell he's one of these scheming conservative politicians who's gone down for something it's wonderful everybody is so game in this they have a who's who of of British character actors I also love Tom Conti Tom Conti's character oh the judge oh you you forget about these individual scenes they're so fantastic the scene in the barbers which is pretty much like a silent film it's, it's hilarious. It's so wonderful where, where Paddington finds himself, uh, you know, alone with Tom Conti. <laughs> and Paddington <laughs> assumes, well, I, I've got to be the barber here because the barber stepped out or whatever it is. And it's just wonderful stuff. It's when I he's on the train so, at the so end. Funny. He's on the train at the end. Oh, he's the wife. <laughs> yeah. And he's complaining yeah. again about that bear. Um, yeah, it's it's very, very funny. They have these lovely throwaway moments where after Hugh Grant has robbed St. Paul's because he's following these clues on, on a sort of a mm. treasure hunt that's in a pop-up book that Paddington wants to give as a gift to Aunt Lucy who never uh, visited London and always wanted to and he thought it would be a nice gift for her and Hugh Grant needs it because it's going to give him a fortune and riches. Um, after he has robbed St. Paul's dressed as a nun, the Brown family turn up and the policeman goes... Um, and none went berserk and one of them goes really? he goes it happens <laughs> that made me laugh well I don't know if you know anything about Paul King's history did you ever watch the uh, comedy series the Noel Fielding comedy series The Mighty Boosh it was on Channel 4 back in the mid 2000s um, I didn't it's great funny anarchic surreal visual treat it's just this mad kind of like explosion of an internal world and uh, he directed all of that um, and collaborated with Noel Fielding uh, doing that and you can see I can see the the kind of like the evolution of the sensibilities of of the mighty Bush in this where it, the film has that you know that um, it's almost like Wes Anderson at times when you look yeah, at the it, prison break of, is very much like a Wes Anderson stop motion sequence yeah but it goes back to his he has that style in his comedic you know tv stuff going way back and then simon farnaby and him they collaborated as well they collaborated going way back simon farnaby appears in the movie he's the guy who actually says turn around stunning sister you know that character yeah that's the guy who says a nun went berserk it happens that's simon farnaby so he co-wrote the paddington movies with paul king he's got an amazing history in comedy as well he was one of the central troops 
behind horrible histories and that movie Mindhorn he starred in Mindhorn as well as well as wrote that so I think the team behind it are just this kind of brilliant comedic brilliantly in terms of comedy and brilliant in terms of their cinematic visuals and I think just think it is a, a major part of the reason why this film works so well but the story is fucking fantastic Centri- they're not it's, it's making a part three are they it's out this year no it's not they're not but they're not making it no they're not making but part three it's out this year Ben Wishaw just said at Sundance that he's not read a script he doesn't know what's happening with that he doesn't think it's happening what I read it was it was shot last year that's what I read no that they were that it, are you serious it was called Paddington in a Peru there's a there's a yeah they've not I've seen I've seen a poster for it and everything he just said at Sundance he doesn't know what's happening with it he's not read a script Oh my! Well, it's a different team. Like Paul King wasn't down to direct it; um, they were involved in the story. Oh my God! Have they recast him? Uh, no, they couldn't recast him. Well, I'll tell you, if it's not up to scratch, he wasn't the first choice for Paddington, was he? He replaced somebody else. It was Colin Firth was the original choice. Colin Firth oh. had recorded all his lines, and Ben and he himself, I think had said that he didn't feel like he was the right tone of voice for Paddington, even after recording everything. And he stepped aside, and Ben Wishaw was a last-minute call-up. And he's perfect. He is. That's sort of like a Samantha Morton, um, Scarlett Johansson situation with her, where Samantha Morton had done oh, the voice right. of her throughout the whole film, and that was who Joaquin Phoenix was doing his scenes with, and then they replaced it with Scarlett in post. Ben Wishaw says Paddington 3 it's gone silent speaking oh to God. Collider Ben Wishaw who voiced the character in both films this was on the 6th of February yeah I haven't read the script and I don't even know when we're due to shoot it I don't know I thought it would be happening by now but I don't know it's gone silent in the way that sometimes these things do maybe that just means they're still working on it or maybe it means it's not happening you just don't know wow I genuinely thought it was coming out this year I, I What's from what I'd read? Shows what you know. I know nothing. If they, if I it's not up to scratch, for no one for nothing. For nothing. I, do, I, I'm quite happy for them to leave it a padding to do if it's not at all going to be up to the same level. It'd be a very, very hard one to top. Yeah. Because what would be the message of the movie? Like I said, this one has a very clean and clear agenda. Kindness is fun. Kindness is what we need. Mm. So Paddington, Moon, Paddington in Peru. I guess it would be colonialism is fine. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should go back to that. <laughs> a good place for immigrants. Paddington <laughs> brings all of his Britishness to Peru and helps <laughs> save the Peruvians. I don't know. That's the thing. He's going home. He's going home to his roots to Aunt Lucy. So this film has come up in two, to- uh, in two um, episodes. It was uh, came up in best reunion scene for that last scene I brought it up. And also for best for what last credit scene? scene, the scene where he where he wakes up from his coma and he goes downstairs and everyone said we've got someone here for you and he opens the door and Aunt Lucy. So now that I've seen it, yeah. if we do prison breaks, the prison break in this is going to get mentioned. Ah, oh, cool. Yeah, but I was genuinely shocked that they did a Toy Story three moment. Remember in Toy Story three when they were all heading into the furnace and they yeah. all held hands. Did you ever see there's a, a video on YouTube of, I might have mentioned this before actually, I'm sure I did, where a guy, <clears throat> it's Christmas morning, his mom is sitting on the 
couch and she's watching Toy Story 3. They're all sort of relaxing after Christmas. She's not seen it before. And he's mm-hmm. filming his mom on his phone. And she's watching all the toys. <laughs> They're holding hands and they're going into the furnace. And it's sort of, it's building and it's building and it's building. And it goes to black and the music plays. You've got a friend in me. <laughs> you've got a friend in me. And the mother's like going, that's how it ends? That can't be how it ends. And he's like, yeah, that's what everybody loves with the film. He's like, no, that can't be. That's, oh my God, that's terrible. It's so, so funny. But I was surprised that they went that dark with it. Yeah. Where Mrs. Brown is almost saying, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Goodbye, Paddington. As he's droning in front of her. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's, this film. I, I just really do genuinely think this film is so complete in that it's it goes fully dark. Even having Paddington in prison, you know, having him having to turn these characters around, which is the ultimate test for his 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 power of his kindness. Yes, it's kindness. Yeah, he brings out the best in people by helping them to be their best. And I love the visual symbolism of like him accidentally putting his red hat, red something in with the prison uniforms, and all, and it makes and all of a sudden the uniforms pink. pink. And it's just this, <laughs> it's wonderful visual storytelling. Like you know, the little essence of Paddington, even though he didn't do it intentionally, and it probably will get him in worse trouble with the likes of Knuckles, McGinty, or Knuckles, whatever it is. In actual, yeah, ultimately, he's bringing color. He's bringing a pop of life into this environment. It's brilliant visual storytelling. I think it's just a fantastic film. And um, yeah, again, it's like you have a choice there when you're making a film. How do you want to have Paddington rescued by the others? And they have the lowest of the low in society come through for him and break the chains mm. because it's all about connection. Yeah. I'm, st- I'm still sick and stuffed up uh, and, and getting emotional about Paddington is not going to help but I thought this was a wonderful film and I'm really glad I saw it I'm delighted Kevin I am delighted You came back. Can't make marmalade on me own now, can I? <laughs> Thank you, everyone. I'm so glad I watched American Wear for London. I, I could see why everyone loved it. And I'm glad that you finally have seen Paddington 2 and, and liked it. Because if you didn't like Paddington 2, I would have been, I don't know, I think I would have been heartbroken. Would you have gotten stroppy with me? Uh, if, you, if you started going at Paddington, I would have gotten, stro- I would have gotten defensive. I would have gotten defensive. I think I would have, because I've it's I care for it so much. He's like he's this cute teddy bear. He's he's done no harm in the world. He's done no harm in the world. Did you ever see the cartoon as a kid? Yeah, yeah. That was my only contact with Paddington as a character. I think I would have had brief glimpses of Paddington when we had when we briefly had the BBC in tune. So the rare occasion when we had BBC, I think I would have seen, and I loved it. I'm sure you grew up with it because you. Um, 
I was only in England briefly. Like I was in England from when I could remember England. It was probably like 18 months. So it wasn't a long time. Right, okay. Oh my God. Uh, That's excellent. Thanks, Will. (laughs) Glad you didn't have much... (laughs) Didn't interfere with Uh, you that much. What are we doing next time? That's the question. We're probably just going to pick some more films. But also, we have... We've asked on Patreon the guys to sort of send us recommendations for films that we should watch because we have not brought them up in previous topics. So we'll probably dive into them, into that bin and uh, and see whether we give a shit about those films. Hey, do you know what I... I don't know. I don't know if this is the right episode to do it on. But I was kind of saying in my own head, I went, we have gotten so many lovely reviews on on Apple, I thought we should start a little habit of like acknowledging the people who took the time to actually write us a review and read out those review on Apple. And I'll read them to you, Kevin, because you might find it a bit cringe. Can I read your review that's on here? From which country? I'm just saying, it's on a- Apple Podcasts. That's all I'm saying. I don't know what country it's from. But you want me to, do you want me to read it? It's probably Ireland then. It's probably, yeah, it is because I mean, this, this one. So this one, this review is a five star and it's from Parik116, right? And the review is this. Uh, Parik says, The Best Bits podcast by Will and Kevin is an absolute must-listen for anyone looking for a fresh and engaging take on films. The hosts have a great chemistry and their conversations are both informative and entertaining. Full stop, they. <laughs> I think Full that's stop, all I can they? Read. It just stopped. There, there, there's a they at the very end. So maybe they get cut off or they you didn't have enough. You just hit more, Will. You say I hit more. more. That's after me hitting more. So, so oh hey, I just wanted to share some positive love. And I want to say thank you so much to Parik116 for writing that review and giving us five stars on Apple. I've got one here from the UK. Right. If you love movies, you love this. This is from Rebot Films. It says, been following Kevin on Twitter for ages and wanted to see whether his deep love of film, S-O-H, Saw, So, Oh, Sense of Humor, uh-huh. and Cheeky Style would translate to a podcast. It Cheeky does. Style. And Will is equally fun to hang out with. Strong recommend for anyone who appreciates a deep dive into film, definitely at the popcorn rather than art house end of things. What's that, What's that supposed, supposed to mean? To mean? <laughs> Which is no bad thing. <laughs> Which is no bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> we like Arthos films as well. We love Petty Baba. It means we're a rollicking adventure. We're down with the common man, Kevin. We're down with the common man. Hey, <laughs> well, listen, it was so lovely to get those reviews. And I think what we should do for these ones is we'll read out one review going forward in these episodes. <coughs> and just to, and if you want your reviews read out, wouldn't it be nice if you just write us a review on Apple and we're going to read them out? Will is doing this to goad you into writing reviews. Rather than just <laughs> shouting at them. <laughs> just say, hey, Fuck you em. can have your review read out on the podcast. We, we love, love you guys. We love, we love you so, so much. much. And we love yes. when we hear from you. Yeah. <laughs> join our Patreon and come over. We, you'll hear a lot more from us. And we'll hear a lot oh, more from you God. if you join us on Discord. <coughs> Kevin is actually dying here. Where do I post the lung, Kevin? I'm sick. I'm sick of this podcast. See ya. Bye. Whenever you rent or buy a video... Do you love, love it? it. Is, do you like the song? I, it's, it's one that's on my playlist constantly, all day long. Sing us a bit of it there. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. I've got my green door. And it's...
it's so green, it's so green, it's so green. And it's so bad, it's so yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've got my door. Green door. My green door. And it's so green, it's so green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got my green door. My green door. It's so green. How much I adore my green door. My green door. Green door. So green. So green. Green door. This is what fucks me up. Fucking, 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 fucking proper looking cunts. Fucking Putin. Fucking Twitter. Fucking Pessy. Just fucking fuck off. <laughs> Talking to you, you stupid cunts. Cunts, 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 and little sons, a little mini cunt prick. I got my green door. I can't finish a sentence. I can't finish a fucking sentence. Shut up, bitch! Ignorant as fuck. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. Right? Because fucking Kevin won't let me finish a fucking sentence. I'm imagining. just get back. Oh, guys. He's harder to manage than two children. Three children. Oh, my God. Oh, guys. <laughs> Just immediately conjured up a humiliating moment of my life. Humiliating moments of my life. And the BAFTA goes to. This is the reason we can't put these out on the main feed, right? Have you won a BAFTA? Have you won a BAFTA? Nice to be the right now. Oh, oh guys. Well, might win two, then. I know what it means like that. And there was a good long queue behind us. And I just got this fucking waft. And I just went, someone smells a shit here. And the BAFTA goes to Will Collins. And the commander wins. Someone fucking smells a shit. Oh. It was... Katie. Oh. I got my green And here is a clip from the lad's latest mini bits bonus show. The full episode, plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon. The best bits for Will and Kevin. No, the best bits for Kevin and Willem. For the films and the, the TV and the latest films. Something, something, something. something. Um, don't forget that you owe us three euro. <laughs> you <Okay>. can't remember <laughs> what? <laughs> oh my God. I, I did a whole Irish theme. The best bits for Kevin and Willem. Talking deviantly. Okay, right. I'm going to find the fucking thing. Because it's going to be the music to start the episode. I don't think I've heard this. You have. Well, maybe you haven't. I don't think I have heard this. I do. I suspect that what you do is you just put the laugh and emoji thing. And think I'll listen to that some other time. Fuck it, that'll do. Because it's bound to be funny in his eyes. So I'll just tell him what he wants to hear. I actually only laugh the emoji when I've actually listened. <laughs> I should have taken the hint that nobody was responding to the Podbot one. Like nobody was giving me any reaction to it. And oh. I thought they hadn't listened to it yet. And then yeah. of course I was delighted with that and people hated it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it was it was it wasn't easy on the ears in a, in the sense that it was just her monotone voice, so there was no up and down. That's the thing. Yeah, I know. I tried my best. You're a bug and I'm a feature. Pray to this mantis or I'll eat you. And if you don't know my name, here's an update to teach you. I'm, I'm, I'm Hogwarts and I'm the future. An AI podcasting computer. The number one zero one zero zero one one producer. I'm a psycho psycho. Yeah, that's exactly. Good. Did you do? So. Don't forget, now you owe us three euro.
I come off the stage I'm not, that. I've not I've I've not heard this I swear to God I'm going to send it to you right now and you can get a genuine reaction I'll actually listen to it so I'm, I have my WhatsApp open the best is Kev and Willem about the telly and the latest film come and try to the dynamic duo don't forget now you owe three euro come off the stage oh that <laughs> that's genuinely my first time hearing that <laughs> I just could easily have just scrubbed it from my memory that's the other thing that could have happened how do you operate? I, 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 I generally just go on impulses. So if I need to toilet, I just toilet. And does, I don't, that doesn't necessarily mean I need to be Squat in the proximity like a of a toilet. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You just go. I just nappy it, Kevin. I just man, I just adult nappy it. Oh, we've got loads to talk about. Um, I've watched a load of things. So have I. But I think I should get one thing off my chest straight away because I think the discourse out there sometimes can feel really artificial to me and it can feel like people will films to be worse than they are in order to have something to point at and ridicule and sort of create content about. Should I start the timer? Have we just started? Start the timer because I'm rare to go. I saw Madam Webb. Right. I honestly, guys, know nothing. All I all I know is I saw a poster oh, very recently. It went, there's a Madam Web film, and I'm what is this? So it's a Spider Verse adjacent Marvel movie. Yeah, it's it's one of these Sony things where they did Venom and they're doing Craven the Hunter, okay. and it's sort of an offshoot of the Spider Man movies. But I don't right. know what universe they're in because they're trying to blend them all together. So is this the Tobey Maguire Spider Verse? To me, it feels like it's in that space. Mm. Anyway, I thought I'm done with superhero movies. I'm just over them. I watched Captain Marvel not re- long ago, and I thought it was just tedious. Are you it's so lifeless. The Marvels, not Captain Marvel. Is that what Marvels? You're well, yeah. she's in it. Captain Marvel. Captain yeah. Marvel two. It was just sort of like it was another one of those films that felt like Ant Man in that everything was chemical and synthetic and fake and mm. airless. And, you know, you just have sound stage after sound stage. And I just feel profoundly depressed watching those films. We feel like yes, there's nothing organic happening in these. From the lines of dialogue to the hairstyles to the costumes to the sets to the music to everything just feels... It's artificial, wafer-thin, just wafery, artificially, no sustenance, no satisfaction... You know protein in it whatsoever. You feel like, oh, yeah. wow, I just I just put something down my throat and I'm still hungry. It feels like eating plastic Okay, on the whole. It's just drifted so far away from what Iron Man was that I just don't care about them. Yet, I found The Flash really fun because it, was, it felt like a Bill and Ted type movie at times. It was off the wall bonkers. And I don't really particularly give a shit about special effects. Whether they're good or bad, you know, I can buy into it because of the ideas behind it or the concepts behind it. So I wasn't like revolted by the, the special effects of the Flash. I just thought, you know, it's mm. funny to see babies falling out of windows and being put into microwaves and things like that. So I went into Madame Web, not really giving a fuck about the genre, but I wanted to see it for the sake of having an opinion on it. And the trailer was awful. It had that terrible line reading in it from the Dakota Johnson where she's, she's shitting out exposition. And I think people had the film's cards marked at that stage. And uh, the film itself, to me, played like a Final Destination action thriller. And I thought it was really pleasant. It didn't bother me in the slightest. I didn't have any of the issues that everybody else has. It was 
uh, a reluctant hero with no superpowers whatsoever other than having premonitions, trying to keep three teenage girls alive against somebody who's like the evil version of Spider-Man who wants to murder them. And they just played that out in a very cinematic way where it felt like a Sam Raimi type Spider-Man. It looked as good as that. It was all relocations. For me, it felt like a lovely throwback to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. And I don't get why everybody loads the film. I thought it was just fun. Oh, wow. Uh, all I've yeah. seen is the negative discourse. And you're the first voice. I believe, you know, I haven't listened to the episode because I haven't watched the film yet. I know the Cinemile uh, had differing views. Oh, fuck. Me and Kathy, we were the, so far the only people that I know who don't think the film is dire, but... Dave almost had a hernia on that episode. It was very <laughs> enjoyable listen to listening to it. <laughs> oh, I had to listen to it. He was, I'm really curious. I'm really he was curious. disgusted because Caddy was pushing back and I thought it was very, very funny. And then when I saw it, I was like, do you know what? I am actually on the side of Caddy here. This is actually grand. Right. This is actually grand. <laughs> so <I've, laughs> but you That's know so what? Funny. It didn't feel like a superhero movie. So I liked it for that reason. Oh, it's okay. I'm just going to look up some of the, the credits. And I like Dakota um, Johnson's performance as well. She was playing this sort of curmudgeonly antisocial character. And to put that type of person in the role of having to be a protector is actually really fun for me. And it's a role that you don't see many female characters inhabiting. That's more like a Harrison Ford type role. And um, I enjoyed it. So I don't get why everyone is shitting their britches over it. It's grand. Thank you.